Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast, and I'm doing it solo uh, for a few episodes, uh, but Pete will be back. He promises. He swears. Uh, I think that the reveal was just a little too much for him, and he just couldn't couldn't quite handle it. So, it's just me, uh, but I'm going to be talking about Minute 67, which begins with Dr. Zola flipping the catwalk control switch and ends with Steve and Bucky looking for a way up and out. Back on the show, we have returning guests, Andrew and Joe Dorowski. Hello. How are you two? We are good. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to speak for Joe, don't, but don't do that. Don't. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, <laughs> don't know that I can go up to good. No, I'm, I thank you so much for having us on. And we get to talk for a long time about face peeling, skin peeling. <laughs> I was, oh, I yes. was just checking the actual count. Uh, of time for which we are talking about either face peeling or a reaction to face peeling. <laughs> and it is it is a full 10 seconds, 12 if you can't th- count the part where he cleans off his neck. <laughs> yeah. I, well, that's part of it. There's still something there he's got to get off. So absolutely. Uh, no, which I, I do like as as an element that he has to take care of. It's like, okay, it's not, it's not a clean process. No. And they're just like, no, we're going with that take. Yeah, there's something on the mask that got stuck back there. It it does make me wonder, like, is there is this how he normally does it? Is there an easier way to get this off? Is it, was this meant to be like a reusable face? But he now he was just in such a rage that he just rips it to pieces as he's pulling it off. I have so many questions about the process that he goes through with this. It's part of a, a long tradition of superhero films involving a latex mask being ripped apart as it's removed you know like batman <laughs> <laughs> like batman like the mission impossible films well i mentioned in the last minute uh the tvtropes.org the website and of course when one thing that i had to look up when uh, it came to this minute was the masks and pulling masks off and they have a category called latex perfection about the idea of these <laughs> these masks that get pulled off and when you look at the use in film i mean it is all through it uh one of the first of the oldest examples was actually in the film phantomas uh back in 1964 and that was where the villain always would wear a bald bluish latex mask to conceal his true identity and then he would wear other masks when committing crimes and then sometimes he would peel off the bluish mask to reveal a new mask and so is this whole thing (laughs) And then, of course, James Bond, uh, there's the thing in From Russia with Love, Austin Powers spoofs it, of course, Scooby-Doo, Mrs. Doubtfire. I mean, it is a big thing. And, uh, you know, I I guess in sense of a villain with a disfigured face of some sort, another good example that um, that I can think of would be like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where you have the villain Mm -hmm. in that Christopher Lloyd playing Judge Doom who has a disguise looking like a human, but in reality, he is a creepy, creepy tune. Which I don't think they... I think he keeps that mask on until he melts, so I don't think you actually ever see what the cartoon looks like. He that's, he. that's The only thing he does is um, he pops... Well, he pops out his eyes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah. you see cartoon eyes, but right. otherwise... Yeah, you're right. It has it's, been a it's long time mask. since I watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I am getting vivid flashbacks from these descriptions. Uh, <laughs> that it oh, is... It's Joseph. Joseph, yeah. you should go watch it, because it's pretty fantastic. I've, I've guested on... Um, there's going to be a, a Roger Rabbit Minute who, who analyzed Roger Rabbit, and I've 
been a guest on their recordings and it it is a fun watch. It is yeah. it, it is a rock solid movie to go back to. Absolutely. I think I just have a vague memory of I was probably too young for that final act when the guy gets thrown over by the bulldozer and <laughs> you know every... <laughs> as a kid yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. That is a lot to take. I mean I can totally understand that. Even though it's your villain having a person who looks like a person getting run over by a uh, uh, a steamroller it is it is a pretty terrifying thing mm-hmm. to witness. So Oh yeah, yeah. steamroller. Yeah. <laughs> But you get so much good Bob Hoskins in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. That movie's just perfect. That is a great, great movie. Anyway, um, let's face. Yeah, let's before we <laughs> before we get to face ripping, though, I just want to set things up. So in the last minute, we saw Zola run over to the catwalk uh, control switch and flip it so that the catwalks would retract. Now, uh, in the uh, I had a few thoughts on this. Uh, why is this part of the design? Uh, my assumption is normally in a thing like this, it's because they're building something really big that needs to actually right. move by periodically. And so they have to retract the catwalk. So whatever it is can get by, which makes or me think, are they? Dirigible. Or, yeah, or a dirigible, or, or are they building pieces of the uh, Valkyrie in here oh, and, yeah. and needed a little more space? I, I really wasn't sure, but I thought that was interesting. But what was funny is in the script, when he flips that switch, Schmidt actually, as it's written, it says, uh, Schmidt gives Zola a withering look and Zola pales, which I thought was really interesting. Like, how dare you stop me from having this confrontation with my nemesis? And I think mm-hmm. that's really funny that that they kind of left that out because, uh, you know, Zola does seem largely, uh, you know, through much of the film to kind of pale from things that, uh, that Schmidt's doing. I mean, how do you two, uh, buy, like, what do you two read into the relationship between Schmidt and Zola? I don't think Schmidt is a fan of Zola showing any initiative. <laughs> he, he wants the lackey that only does what he's told. And he did not order him mm-hmm. to open the bridge. So it would have fit perfectly for him to give a look like, well, what are you doing thinking for yourself over there? <laughs> I I agree. I think that's maybe the like the best way to think about it. Um, yeah. And I mean, Zola is part of Hydra, but he like he feels like a civilian contractor. Yeah. Like, he doesn't feel like he's enlisted, right? Like, he never wears a uniform. No, right. There's a sense of him kind of... I mean, we talk a lot about him being comparable to Erskine, but in a sense, maybe there's almost more of a comparison with with Howard Stark, how he kind of is the one who's building these things, but is kind of the civilian contractor working with them, with this particular team. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about that before, but that's an interesting perspective for sure. Yeah, like, he... He takes orders, but it's like I don't think he's part of like a chain of command in any way. Well, and, and we were trying to figure out like what is what is he supposed to be doing? Like he seems excited to be building things and coming up with all of these designs and making stuff with the Tesseract energy. But when he has that opportunity to talk to Schmidt about the fact that um, you know Erskine, they found Erskine, and you know what are we going to do about it? And he asks, should I give the order? And Schmidt's like, the order has already been given. It's like. Oh, oh, good. Great. That's great. But it seems like he was expecting that. So it's it's like he doesn't even know what Schmidt is expecting of him. It's it's a very odd relationship that they have. And I think it's interesting the way it's portrayed. And I, I think it's interesting, like how Zola ends up getting portrayed uh, when we get to Winter Soldier, which we'll have to wait a while to get to that. But um, it almost seems like a different Zola, the way that he reacts there. Mm-hmm. So would it have made sense at this point as the catwalks uh, retracting for Steve to just jump over and keep fighting? Is there a reason he doesn't? Is it because Schmidt's monologuing here? Any thoughts on that? He just, I, don't, I think he just doesn't know 
like he won't jump until he's more compelled or is it because he's like, well, Bucky's right here. Like we have an objective. Yeah. I, I was going to say he's still a little protective of the, the wounded Bucky, you know, that's, that's there. I thought, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm over there, is Bucky really going to be in great shape to go <laughs> save himself. Yeah. That's actually an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, I, obviously he's, he's here protecting this person, his friend that he rescued. So it wouldn't make sense for him to jump over just in case he couldn't get back or something. He wants to make sure Bucky gets out safely. So, okay. That I buy that. Um, but then, yeah, now we get, let's talk about this face pull. So, uh, it's, I mean, it is a perfect trope. I love it when it's used. Um, and again, I mean, we kind of had started expecting it because we saw the damage around the eye. Uh, and now it fully comes off here. Um, how does, does it play for you? Do you buy into the way that this works? I mostly do. I don't care for like dropping it down into the flames. I think that that part looks, you know, less convincing and, and, and just feels less necessary. Um, but overall, I think it's uh, like he looks just like the Red Skull. Yeah, I I, th- I think I like the final reveal more than the process of the reveal. Um, like the the makeup job. <laughs> That's fair on Red Skull. That is amazing and that is top notch. The journey from Schmidt to Red Skull. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, you referenced all like you watch a Mission Impossible movie and you're kind of like, really that face was under that other face <laughs> you just kind of have to uh just accept that that's the world you're living in or the whole thing's gonna fall apart uh and and i they they spend plenty of time on trying to do the face rip uh but you are left i think with questions of what does red skull's morning routine look like uh to, <laughs> to get the face off uh and, and to get dressed in that outfit with all those buttons and straps uh and how does it like like the the final reveal of the red skull does that do those contours line up with what I saw on the face at all <laughs> just, just a minute ago? Right. Um, <laughs> but the 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 finale, you know, the, the the work that they did to bring this absurd comic book character to life on the screen uh, is so good that I forgive any of any of the the hiccups in the journey that I have. Yeah, I think that's largely where I land with it. I mean, actually, I don't mind the process that he goes through in pulling it off. In fact, I actually like that it does take it seems like there's a lot more work to get this thing off like it. Uh, I feel like in stuff like Mission Impossible, it's just like, you know, just you rip this thing off so quickly. And it's like, really, that was all under there. And, and <laughs> it, it works so well here. It legitimately seems like it takes a while to get this thing to fit just as it does. And it takes a long time to get it off. Like, I enjoy how hard it seems to kind of pull this thing off and how, like, it seems so kind of stuck to him. I think that's kind of mm-hmm. a cool thing that we don't always see with this sort of thing. Yeah. Like when he's grabbing uh, that little bit of whatever stuck on the back, whether it's, <laughs> you know, so just just some stuff stuck in the neck or or some of the hair was still on or whatever it is like just the fact that it didn't come off cleanly is a great touch and i don't know if that was deliberate or if that's just the way it ripped during the take and they kept it i I, you know i don't know how that went but it is uh something that does make it feel you know that that whatever percentage you want to label it more real than the mission impossible mask yeah right right Uh, you know we'll say 60 percent (laughs) more it seems to be a number that that schmidt likes so I, I also like that this is something where uh, Joe Johnston seems to have a, a good handle on how to do an effect like this. Like you, you start off with just Hugo Weaving pretending to pull a mask off and you end with, you know, uh, Hugo Weaving in Red Skull makeup uh, pulling a mask off over his head. Like there, there's something very um, 
visceral and, and it feels very like an actual thing that he's actually working at doing as he goes through that process. And I really buy into it. And then you just have that one shot in the middle that they just had to, you know, modify a little bit where it's, it's Hugo weaving on one side and Red Skull on the other as he kind of pulls it off. And so it's like they only had to do some digital work on that one middle shot. And so I think, you know, that's the sort of lesson that Joe Johnston probably learned from working with uh, people like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and like that whole group that he, uh, he kind of, you know, came up with and was able to kind of blend all of the different technologies together to make something that feels a lot more authentic, at least for the way that I'm reading it. Now, I've never seen it, but he did a Wolfman movie, right? He did. He did do the Wolfman movie with uh, Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins. So lots of transition work. Hey, um, yeah, yeah. You right. know, part, part of his, his repertoire as a director. Yeah, it came right before this. We actually did a hiatus episode um, about that uh, for our members, which was kind of a fun, uh, a fun episode. I mean, it's not a great movie, but the effects work. I mean, yeah, that's that is the thing that uh, you can tell that he spent some time with is that they did do some, um, you know, physical stuff and some CG. Now, in that one, they did decide to do a lot more of it in CG than they had originally planned because um, they realized that they would be able to kind of get more specifically what they were actually looking for. Um, so I think that by, you know, I think at that point he kind of settled in on let's just do it that way because, I mean, it was complicated. But um, there are moments in there where you have some good transformations. Now, for this uh, Red Skull um they, I mean, there's lots of this is prosthetics, right? Like the nose removal, obviously, that's got to be done. Uh, CGI, yeah. but all the, the the cheekbones jutting out, that was all prosthetics that they had on Hugo Weaving, right? That's my, I remember seeing some featurette or, or some article about it back in the day, and that's always stuck with me, that they, they wanted to do as much of it physically as they could. I, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that they worked hard to make it look that way. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a full, like, kind of red prosthetic mask mm -hmm. with that little I mean it's kind of the same thing they did with um Ray Fines in Harry Potter where they they put that little thing on his nose that they would then remove digitally but otherwise when you look at him behind the scenes yeah I mean it's it's pretty impressive the way that he legitimately looks this way like a person who has no skin and it's kind of creepy the way that it plays it's like um, it's, I, I don't know, it's an interesting look because I mean, uh, it's such a cartoon character, yeah. right? In the comics, it's like, it's so nonsensically cartoonish that it's like, how do you legitimately do it in a way where an audience can kind of buy into it? And the fact that it doesn't feel like, you know, this is a person whose literal skin has just been like, uh, flayed off of him. And now we're just looking at all these raw muscles. Like it doesn't look like that, but there's something about it that still looks like more than just a skull, uh, I don't know, but it's very cool the way that they ended up putting it together. And I can only imagine like the amount of time that they kind of had to figure out exactly how they were going to make it work right. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many choices that for a comic artist, they just draw, you know, a skull and you throw a word balloon on and we all kind of like move on. <laughs> you don't necessarily, work. but to see that in <laughs> the wrong word, but in flesh, uh, moving on, on the screen, um, but to make it, you know, plausible and, and like, think about the choices they have to make that couple guards really just, they don't draw an ear, but it's like, for this, it's like, well, how, what are we going to do with Hugo Weaving's ears? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we have to cover them or bring them in or, or, or what? And then, I mean, just like the, the texture that there is around his, his face, right? Like you can still see the lines of his face to some degree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's smoothed out some cause it's like, well, it's not skin. So it like wrinkles aren't the same. 
but they put wrinkles in to some degree. So it, it still looks very, like you said, plausible. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the wrinkles, it's almost like they are the muscles, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but, but, but not the muscles. Cause again, I think it would, it would, you know, be an R rated film if it was a person who looked like it was just raw muscle on his face, like blood and, yeah. uh, you know, flayed flesh. Like that would just look awful. But the fact that it looks comic bookish, red, you can see those lines. They look like, you know, the muscles, but it also just looks like the wrinkles. Like it ends up, I don't know, something about it creates this, this weird amalgam of all those things that, that I buy into as this comic book creation. And I, I find him so fascinating as a villain and I love his look. Uh, yeah. And in the comic book, there are times where like, it really does feel like they've decided to just draw a skull and it would be like, well, how, <laughs> yeah. how does the, the jaw move? Right. And, and they got to mm. find a line to walk uh, <laughs> with this because I, I think the static image of the comic books let you give a pass to that, that, the moving image of the of the film would not allow an audience to really give that much of a pass uh, to this. And what they found for me, this is one of the highlights of the film, is the practical makeup that is done on Hugo Weaving for, for you know to make him into the Red Skull. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And and they they got like the color just right, where it feels like an organic color of red, but it it doesn't feel quite like blood. Yeah. Right, right. It, it feels like just kind of a reddish flesh, like like an alien creature or something. There's something about it. It's a line that they've had to walk a lot in Marvel. Like we've had green characters, obviously, like with Hulk and stuff. We've had, uh, uh, gr- I mean, what other colors have we had? Blue, purple. Like we've had a variety <laughs> of different mm-hmm. skin tones. Mm-hmm in characters and and finding that right blend so it's not just like this primary red like you have to find a way to kind of uh create a a tone within it that allows it to feel kind of natural and it's uh it is interesting it is interesting um bucky asks a good question uh you don't have one of those do you and uh, i think that it's an important question and we were wondering too like do you think steve like, do you think there's more to Steve that we just never actually find out that, uh, like, there may be something? And why does this happen to Schmidt in the first place? Uh, I mean, we've speculated a lot because all we've had is Erskine saying the serum wasn't ready. Is this because the serum wasn't ready? Or is this uh, something that happens because this is revealing his true inner self? Yeah, because they they say the serum, you know, there's that question. Was the serum not ready? But also he has that monologue where he says, like, it, it multi, you know, it, it it makes more of whatever's Amplifies. in you, what what is within you. The good will become better and the bad will become worse. And so yeah. is his evil nature as a Nazi somehow perverting the physical transformation that the serum uh, could could give is there like a moral component <laughs> to to the serum's reaction <laughs> to the bodies of the people that get injected with it? <laughs> well, and a part of me is wondering. So obviously, for Steve, Tony Stark's like a major part of you know the science that that goes into you know making Steve Rogers into Captain America, and they use that like the blue light of the Vita rays or whatever, and that seems to be like. Tony Stark's thing is that Tony energy uh, and the, the, or, or yeah, Howard. Uh, Howard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so Stark adds something to this process. And so maybe it has something to do with like, okay, what did like, did Erskine, did, did Erskine irradiate Schmidt with something? Like, is he just, you know, what was his secondary, you know, addition beyond just the serum? And so it could have been, you know, some of that process as well. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, we're not given a lot. And Erskine, I mean, it's all kind of his perspective, that little story that we get. And even in this minute, you know, we actually have uh, this moment where Red Skull actually talks to him about what Erskine had said and said, no matter what lies Erskine told you, you'll see I was his greatest success. And this whole idea about uh, Steve being deluded and all of this, like, there's an interesting element to that perspective of, you know, we saw Erskine's flashback of what happened with Schmidt, but it was also very um, dreamlike in the way that it was described. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not seeing... An, an authentic lab. We're seeing like bubbling, you know, bubbling, mm-hmm. you know, materials behind him and fire and all this sort of stuff. It feels very um, storytelling the way that Erskine's flashback is made. And so when you have this moment where Schmidt is having this, it does make you wonder, like, perhaps there was something with Erskine that he was actually happy with how things turned out with Schmidt and then realized how Schmidt was evil and actually fled. And, and so I don't know. I, I think that it's actually interesting, like this this perspective that we have, where where is the line that we have between Erskine and Schmidt and and uh, Steve, and how all of that kind of connects to kind of creating whatever this super soldier serum is really supposed to be doing with the people. Yeah, and to, to have such different results, uh, I think like all the questions we have are reasonable responses to an audience watching this movie, and the movie is not terribly interested in giving us a concrete answer. <laughs> well, no. And I think that ends up being the big thing that leads to all these questions, because clearly they were just like, eh, we're not going to worry about it too much, and you know, we'll, they'll just figure it out. For a character that is, you know, more grounded... Uh, you know, where like his power set ends up being like human plus, you know, so more grounded than someone like a Superman character or, you know, even some of the other Marvel characters uh, that we're going to end up getting. There is a surprising amount of hand waviness that happens with Captain America. <laughs> where it's like, how does he survive in the ocean? He just did. He, he, he's good. He's just, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, and why does he become, you know, this version and Red Skull becomes that version? Ah, they just did. They, good became good, better and bad became worse. I mean, we're we're going to move on. <laughs> Yeah, it's so hand wavy, like that they just kind of dismiss that stuff so quickly. And it's like, uh, all right, I just I wish there was a little more. And I mean, even in the comics, they they talk about how Steve, like it's all of his senses have been amplified, his vision, his hearing, like all of these different things. And here it's like they never really play with that. I mean, they do to a certain extent, like he clearly has, um, you know, developed some form of photographic memory where he's like looking at these maps very quickly and is able to like pull things from them down the road. Do you guys take that as as a an enhancement from the serum? I always assumed that was his artistic eye. I kind of took it as an enhancement from the serum. We were talking about that when he jumps out of the plane, too, because it's like, how does he know where he's going? And we're like, well, if there was this enhancement with the serum, he looks at the map that Peggy shows him in the plane. He knows where he is as he's jumping out of the plane. He can kind of identify the land. And now he kind of knows how to get there. Also, his hearing is probably amplified so he can hear vehicles far in the distance and kind of run toward them. I don't know. It just seems like they're not explaining these things. But if you read Mm. into it, you go, well, I can kind of... I can see how this stuff might be there. They're just not playing with it. It's a line that they're having to keep. Um, you know, we've talked about this also, where it's like, you know, there's Superman over in the other universe and Captain America over in this one. And we don't want to kind of keep spelling things out to make Captain America look that much like Superman. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I think that was a probably a an issue that they very specifically were Uh, doing where they just wanted him to seem like he's just a great guy and he fights strong 
that's pretty much where they <laughs> yeah. leave it with him. <laughs> Super Soldier Serum is going to uh, make his punch, punches land harder. He's going to run faster. And he can survive in frozen, <laughs> you know, frozen ice. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that we haven't talked about a lot uh, yet, or we haven't had the opportunity to, but he clearly knows how to pinball a shield. Yes. That's like an incredible skill that somehow he also develops. Yes. Uh, and, and with Steve, at least, it's presented as almost like intuitive uh, to him. Right. Right. Yeah. It's such a strange thing. All right. Now. Going back to um, to Schmidt, so this is, is this, I, I don't know, I like, why is this a turning point for him? Up to this point in the film, he has always had a mask on, except for that one moment where he's having his portrait done. And in that case, he's even, like, hiding his face, like he's turning the lights off, so as, I don't know, not to scare Zola or something. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but at this point... It's like he's going to rip this mask off and never put it on again. Like, why is this a turning point for him? Why doesn't he just, when he hops in his little uh, plane in later minutes, why doesn't he go pull one out of his briefcase and put another mask on? Any thoughts as to why this is a turning point? Or is it just purely because for the audience, now the reveals happened and now we want to see him this way? I think he kept all the masks in this lab. And, <laughs> that and was he, and last he blew one. it up threw it down he, he did, he's like well i'm never gonna blow up this lab so all those other bases that i've set up i don't need to put you know some of my personal effects there um no that's gonna be my no prize answer <laughs> yeah uh, he's like damn it why didn't i have 10 minutes on the clock yeah and so he didn't have time to go <laughs> grab him but so, so like within story structure this is like for for Captain America. This is a point of transformation, right? This is the abyss in transformation, where he's going to come out of this as, um, you know, a different person than he went in, uh, not because of superhero origins, but because of the hero's journey, right? <laughs> you know, this this is where yeah, we're at with exactly. with Steve, and I. So I think in some ways this is meant to be the, like the parallel for. Uh, Red Skull, that he is also going through a moment of transformation uh, and transition and becoming, in his mind, like his best self uh, because of this encounter with, uh, you know, uh, you know, again, in his mind, like this darker version of this, you know, this this doppelganger, uh, you know, for, for Red Skull, Captain America is the doppelganger. The, the fact that he's like revealed himself to an opponent is like, OK, like this changes my. Yeah, my my trajectory for the remainder of of what's going on, which feels like maybe that turning point really should have come when he was like killing other Nazis. Sure. In, yeah. in, the, in the lab, he's like, OK, well, I've really you know turned a corner here as far as my relationship to. You know, Hitler, <laughs> but now, you know, I, I'm revealing myself to Captain America. Like, why? Yeah. Why does that stick for him in a, in a different way? Yeah, it's it is strange. I do I do like that there is that doppelganger sense like, you know, like I now have somebody who is my equal. I don't need to pretend I'm I mean, it's kind of actually in his dialogue here where he's just like, uh, you're just afraid to admit that we've left humanity behind. Unlike you, I embrace it proudly. It's almost like that speech that he gives to Steve, and maybe this is the whole thing, is like, I am leaving humanity behind now. I mm -hmm. am taking this step forward into creating this uh, darker future uh, where I control everything, and uh, I don't need to hide behind this anymore. Yeah, it's like a pep talk for himself, because up to this point, he has not embraced it. He is hiding, yeah. uh, you know, clinging, at least presentationally, to shreds of humanity. Uh, and it is from this point forward that he's going to allow that, that separation to be undeniable. 
No, I, I think that works. That's actually pretty interesting. I didn't think of it as his own pep talk. <laughs> He's giving to himself. He's like, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Let's do this. Okay. I didn't either tell you were reciting it just now. I'm like, well, I, has he really embraced it? <laughs> because he's, he's wearing this mask uh, up until this moment. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, this is that moment. He's just like, well, screw it. We're in it now. Let's just start fighting everybody. So <laughs> he's, he's like talking to himself in the elevator after Steve says, like, why are you running? He's like, why am I running? I'm not going to put this mask on again. <laughs> he's, 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 right, he's thinking he's of right, a comeback man. that he could have given Steve after the elevator door closes. He's like, ah, smashes the button to try to open it again. <laughs> this is the, the moment in the musical that you would have uh, uh, him singing his song as he's on that elevator ride up to the top mm-hmm. of, you know, that he's this is the decision point and you're 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 jumping you know it'd be it'd be a great <laughs> musical moment for him <laughs> uh and they do uh he and zola hop into the elevator and they head up uh to the roof as we'll find out in a later minute but at this point um i had one last uh note here and it's bucky when he says his line you don't have one of those do you Bucky's looking pretty rough. I mean, this is about, you know, about right uh, midway through the minute, about 26, 27, 28 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's stubbly. He's got kind of a cut on his cheek. His eyes are kind of watery. He's a, he's a mess. I just want to remember that for when we get to a later minute, because <laughs> I'm not exactly sure <laughs> where he found someone to clean him up partway through, but apparently he does. So just, just, yeah, he, he, he definitely looks uh, worse for wear. Yeah. He does really, really and, terrible. And, and also, like in this moment, psychologically worse for where he's like, "What is going on?" <laughs> it's like, I was just on a table. Is this what's happened to the world when I've been out? Yeah, yeah. Steve's huge. This guy's got a red face. Like nothing makes sense anymore. Yeah, that's where we are. All right. Uh, any last thoughts about anything of this minute with the reveal or Bucky or anything? I would just say the 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 mask that he throws down when it, you see it drift down into the explosion. Uh, timing, perfect timing, by the way, for him to have thrown that with the explosion that's about to come. Yeah, that is in some ways more grotesque than the Red Skull face. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. It, yeah, it is super creepy, that mask. It totally is, I agree. Also, I will say, I'm glad you brought up that explosion because I had this as another note. There are some fantastically timed, like, explosions that go off as he's talking, like explosions with, like, flashing lights that it almost feels like um, lightning or something, the way that it, it, it that it plays as he's doing his little monologue and walking back toward the elevator. Mm-hmm. Uh, it plays so nicely to emphasize some of his lines. I just, I love the way that uh, Johnston kind of used the lighting and the, the explosions and stuff to kind of amplify those moments. Just, just one last thing, as I've scrubbed through this minute, we get that opening shot of the, the you know, the catwalk retracting between them. And then we, we get the overhead shot as the mask is floating down. Does it feel like they have gotten higher <laughs> with the with, with that overhead shot. I'm just looking at that, and that ground seems pretty far away, and I don't know that they were quite that high up, <laughs> or at least it didn't feel quite that high up before. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we are only on the fourth floor. It does feel like, I don't know, we're on the tenth now? It does feel a little <laughs> at too At least high. the mask is falling down. Like That chasm feels like it has deepened considerably. There are explosions. Maybe it has literally deepened. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I, I suppose that's the trick. There's so much fire down there that it is a little hard to gauge, like, exactly how how far down does it go. And that's, you know, it might just be a trick of the eyes. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that is, that is something, because it does feel like um, we're going we're gonna to have some shots looking down uh, in the coming minutes. And uh, we'll have to just compare and see, does it look higher, lower, same, <laughs> as we get to those. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Uh, well, both of you, thanks so much for joining me here to talk about Minute 67. Um, remind everybody uh, where they can find uh, find what you're up to. Um, both of us have podcasts that are ho- ho- uh, housed at duelinggenre.com. So if you go to the Dueling Genre website, you may find other podcasts you're interested in. I host one called The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. And I am on Disney Animation Minute Essentials, which is movies by minutes for Disney animated movies. Fantastic. We'll have links to those in the show notes. Check those shows out. They are great. And that is it for today. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about Minute 68. So until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.